Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Baby Tribe podcast, the podcast where you find evidence-based, unbiased, unbiased, thank you, information on all things related to baby health and nutrition. And I'm getting a little bit sad because this is going to be our penultimate episode before we break for the summer. So is it? Yes, oh, I know. Wow. We're nearly done. This is episode number 15 and our 16th episode is going to be the final one of the season before we break for the summer holidays because I think you're out gallivanting everywhere. So I don't think I'll be able to pin you down. We know that you like to look elsewhere every now and again anyway. <laughs> I just cheat every occasion. Yeah, she, loves, she loves cheating. Um, before we get started, I just want to remind our listeners to rate our podcast wherever you listen to help us reach more people. And I also want to let our listeners know that they can get a 15% discount on everything from my art page, afifsart.net, if you use Baby Tribe, all capital, on checkout. And the same goes for me, folks. Anyone that wants to access any of my live class, if you head over to uh, nursingmama.ie, you'll be able to uh, pop in the same code as Afif has just mentioned, Baby Tribe, all capitals, um, and you'll get a 15% discount off. So head on over. So amazing value that we're giving to our listeners. I'm telling you, we're just buying your love. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so what are we talking about today? So today's a really interesting one. I know we've spoken quite a bit about breastfeeding, combined feeding and all the uh, other bits. But today we're going to talk about weaning from breastfeeding. And I think many parents will agree that they can find or access information um, about starting off breastfeeding. But when it comes to ending their journey, there's quite limited um, or there was little to no information available in times gone by. I uh, started and created my weaning from breastfeeding workshop because it's an area that I'm really passionate about. So I know from my my third child, he absolutely loved breastfeed. And when I went back to work, um, he was in a rank kind of 10 months or so. And at the very beginning, it was grand. Um, he could manage, obviously, during the day without feeds. But once I got home, he was like a little limpet. I could not get him off. And the night feeds increased hugely. And for me, I just started struggling. I wasn't able to manage going back to work and, and being able to function uh, with very little sleep. So I kind of decided at that point, you know what, we had a really good breastfeeding journey and I wanted to wean him. But I didn't know how to do it. I didn't know where to start. And I remember going to my GP over something and I, I remember asking her, like, what do you recommend? And her advice was just go and leave him like he'll cry it out. He'll be grand for three days. And when you come back, you know, you'd be done and dusted. But I knew for me that was not an option. I knew that he would definitely not cope with it very well. And I knew there had to be another way around it. So I researched, I found strategies that worked for us. And I knew that these kind of led to a much more gentler uh, weaning uh, version for myself and Tom. So I implemented these and I found them to be very successful with regards to others trying to wean. Now, weaning can be challenging and it can take time. So prepare yourself is the biggest thing. It's about having a realistic expectation, just like starting out your breastfeeding journey. On the other side, it's about kind of picking the right time. Now, when we talk about weaning from breastfeeding and doing it at the right time, if you're in the throes of kind of earlier stages and the reason why you're weaning is because it's not going very well, well, that's a very different story. I'm talking about for the mothers that are kind of down the line that are deciding that this is the right time for them 
to uh, wean, then it's picking the right time in that you wouldn't pick it if you were moving house. You're not going to pick it if you've got a big stressful event coming up. If your child is transitioning in developmental milestones, and what I mean by that, if they're starting solids, I would never pick to wean at the exact same time because resistance can be higher. Uh, When there's stress within a household, obviously weaning itself can be stressful. So you're adding to that. So pick a time where it's not as, I suppose, there's not major stresses going on. You're not toilet training somebody else or there's no, uh, you, you haven't just had a baby where there's a new little person start arriving into the house. If there's sickness in the house, I would definitely say avoid as well. How long it's going to take is a question that I get asked no over and over again. And really that depends on a number of factors. It depends on the age of the baby. If the baby's smaller, are they transitioning to a bottle? Is there bottle refusal? It depends on your supply. The mothers with a larger supply is going to take a little bit longer on the other side. So if you're returning to work, I'd, I'd always make sure kind of at least six weeks beforehand that you're considering, depending on the age of the baby, that you're now in the throes of kind of uh, reducing down your breastfeeds. Just remember, depending on the age of the baby, if you're returning to work, you don't necessarily need to bring in a bottler that if they're over the kind of nine month age group, um, they can do without a breastfeed during the day. They can have access to the water. They just generally make up for their feeds um, on your return. Also remember that there's a new um, legislation that has been brought in that all mothers returning to work are still entitled to breastfeeding breaks by law. Um, You just need to discuss it with your employer in advance of you returning. So there's no necessity for you to wean when you return to work. But if you've decided that it's the right time for you, then that's perfectly fine. If your baby, as I said, is a little bit older, they can generally manage. They'll be on three meals a day. They'll be able to drink water from their sippy cup. But what you might find is when you return home is that they make up for those uh, missed feeds during the day on your return and often overnight. So we're going to kind of start a fee, I suppose, with the smaller age group, with the under six months. So essentially how you're going to do wean from the breast is pretty much you drop one breastfeed and you give formula in exchange for that. Now, if you've got a baby that's a little bit more reluctant to the bottle and that I wouldn't maybe use formula straight off, I'd use breast milk initially to get them going on the bottle and then wean them off the breast milk onto formula. It can take about three to seven days for your body to adjust to the drop in demand, which is quite normal. For some moms with the larger milk supplies, it could take you seven days, 10 days for your body to adjust. And we often see the longer spell at the very front of first feed that you drop because supply is at its highest. The more feeds you drop, then the overall supply is already taken a hit. So you can often drop feeds much quicker than three to seven days because people think, oh my God, it's going to take me weeks to wean from the breast, but that's not often the case. When it comes to it, you might need to look at your own body. So where you drop drop one feed, um, you might need to hand express at the time of that feed while the baby's getting the bottle, just more for comfort, not to empty. So remember when the breast is left full, there's a protein within the breast that sends a signal to the brain saying slow production, we don't need that much and your body will uh, reduce the supply to meet that uh, reduced demand. However, it doesn't happen today. It can take time. So the next day you might need to hand express a little bit off. The next day you might need to hand express, but it's minimal. It's for comfort, but we don't want such a full breast that can lead to engorgement, which then puts you at a risk of mastitis if we don't deal with it. So what we're trying to do is get from one feed to the next when a bottle is put in the middle of it without you having to stimulate the breast at all. And when you can do that, now it's time to, uh, you can drop the next feed I always avoid dropping back to back feeds if it's not required because it allows your body to reduce uh, supply much easier. It's much more gentler on your body. Plus the resistance for a baby can be less if we don't drop them back to back. What can happen with these infants is that if they are not used to a bottle and they are exclusively breastfed, 
they can have bottle refusals. So I would say to most parents, if it is in your aim, if it's your aim at some point that you want your baby to take a bottle regularly, then you'd bring it in kind of between the eight to 10 weeks regularly in those earlier days and weeks. If you decide, look, it doesn't bother me, I'll just deal with it there and then later on, then that's perfectly fine. But the older the infant, the resistance is higher. Um, if I was going to pick a bottle, I would always look probably the one that I have most success rate is the linen swab bottle. And that's because it's a graduated teeth. Uh, my clients from abroad, probably the even flow balance would be more popular and the doctor brains would probably come third with that. When we look at bottle refusal, we look at the type of bottle. So like I said, in those those types, then I look at the teeth flow. So obviously we're trying to mimic the same as the mother. If a mother has a really fast flow where a baby's guzzling down the milk, you don't want to use a slow flow teat where a baby's going to get really agitated at the at the bottle. But equally, you don't want a really fast flowing teat and a baby that is not used to fast flow. They can get a fright and they can gag and cough and splurt on it. So it's just finding you try to mimic like for like. I would always heat the milk and heat it good and well. Obviously, don't burn your baby. So obviously check the temperature very well. But often when you hold a bottle, the bottle actually itself takes in an awful lot of the heat. The actual fluid inside isn't as warm as what we think it is. Breastfed babies tend to like warmer milk rather than cooler. So always go with that. When we are trying to offer a bottle, generally speaking, the mother is the first person that will offer it because they've been always the ones to offer the source of nutrition all the way through. So they're obviously more, a lot more confident. When we have a partner giving a bottle, if they've never given one before, you'll often find they can be a bit nervous and they can be a little bit, um, if a baby kind of acts up, they get a little bit heightened. And then the baby, if they're in the arms of somebody that's not that confident, they're going to go, oh, give me back to the person that knows what they're doing. And that leads to a confidence hit for the person that's giving the bottle and uh, a baby going, oh, give me what I love the most. And that's the breast. So distraction is your best friend, guys, and consistency is key. Pick one time and I'd always say pick maybe the mid-morning time is probably the easiest or mid-afternoon. Resistance can be less and it's distraction. So to distract them by the environment, whether it's standing in front of a uh, window with the tractor passing by or even put a football match on the screen just to get them to focus on something without even realising. When a baby gets used to it, you'll often find that then you don't need any distraction. They actually know how to use this different technique because bottle feeding is very different to breastfeeding. Using a little bit of pressure to the cheeks can actually get the baby to you engage the cheeks. In breastfeeding, we don't want the cheeks engaged. In bottle feeding, we do. So giving the cheeks a little bit of a squish can help hugely. So basically you're dropping one feed, allow your body to respond and then you can drop the next feed and you pretty much just keep going again. The baby's volume initially might be on very small volumes, but they compensate. So I never, you never need to worry. You don't need to offer a breastfeed straight away. You leave it. And the longer spell without the breast being touched, it reduces the overall supply completely. And what you'll find is the more breastfeeds they drop, the volumes then increase in the bottle. So just remember breastfeeding and how it works is if you were calibrating your highest volume of milk yield by about six weeks, um, that's the same milk supply that you have at six months, the same milk supply you have at a year. If you were roughly looked and you were pumping and you only ever pumped kind of three to four ounces each feed, then that volume doesn't increase with age. What changes is the composition of the breast milk to meet the growing needs of the child, whereas the volume of a formula feeds generally increases with age because obviously formula is stagnant, doesn't change. So the volume needs to increase to meet the growing the additional growing needs of the baby. So when we remove and we have a breastfed baby that moves over to uh, formula, you might often find that they never reach the target on the back of the tin. So that's completely normal, guys. You don't need to panic. What you'll find is as the baby becomes more attuned, they get used to taking the bottle, the feeds will generally space out and the volumes increase. So it's quite normal for babies that are breastfed. Moving over to the bottle initially, they take small volumes and often. What do you think, Fief? 
Poor Fief's looking out the window. I'm, I'm on a tangent here. When, when, when you're on a roll, you're <laughs> unstoppable. That was that was amazing. I actually do have a lot of questions. I have okay. been listening. Sometimes I get asked by mums that they would like somebody else to give the bottle um, while they're pumping. And a lot of the time, the babies don't want to take a bottle from, from, from anyone else. Do you have any advice on how to help facilitate that? So sometimes babies don't like to be handled by other people when they're having their feeds. So what I do find um, is sometimes, depending on the age of the baby, is using a bouncer chair can be a really good way to just get them initially to take the bottle if the mother is always the one that they'll take from the mother, but they won't take from the partner. Then actually, if the partner actually brings, uh, puts the baby into bouncer chair, the thing is as well, we don't want a bottle coming straight at a baby. They'll automatically start turning. If there's any reluctance there, they'll start kind of hitting the bottle where they'll turn their head. They're kind of telling you no. If you bring a bottle from below up, then it's less challenging. It's less frightening for them to see it. And always tip the lip um, initially to kind of ask permission, you know, to let it in. If the bottle goes in, you go for the roof of the mouth. If you go for the roof of the mouth, generally um, leads to more of a suck reflex rather than if you rub against the tongue, you can um, create the gag reflex. And then once you get it, like if a baby takes it in, you'll often find a breastfed infant will move the tongue around. They don't really know what to do with this bottle. And that's where go for the roof of the mouth and then start using your fingers, uh, finger kind of on either side of the cheeks will actually tell the baby to increase, to use the cheeks, which increase the suction in the oral cavity, which actually gets them to start drinking. With a breastfed infant that has bottle refusal, you don't need to worry about paste feeding initially. It's about letting the flow go and letting them to, if they're drinking away, we don't break it until they tell us, take the bottle out. Because oftentimes when it comes out, it doesn't go back in a second time. And it's just building the skill up. So you do it today, you do it tomorrow, you do it the next day until it becomes a habit and it's easy for the baby to take. And then the other flip side of it is mums that actually want to give their babies a bottle and the babies are refusing the bottle from the mum and they'll only take it from someone else. So are there kind of tricks to help encourage babies to take a bottle from their breastfeeding mum? That's just depend. I suppose it's kind of harder when you have a baby that can smell the mother's milk and they're up against them. I'd always say for the majority of infants, if there's any sort of reluctance to face away. So face the baby away from the parent um, and distractions. So it's about getting them to engage with something else, whether that's a toddler or somebody else dancing in front of them, whether it's a screen or something else, just to get them focused on it. But that just comes with time. The more a baby learns the skill of the bottle, it generally becomes easier. You have to understand, I suppose, for a baby, if they've got somebody that's there with nutrition and they prefer that source more than the bottle, that's where it can lead to a bit more difficulties. But that's where sometimes a bouncer chair where a baby is still there in a uh, kind of upright but supported position, not sitting in an upright position, but more reclined, then that allows the mom to have access. So you'll often find if the mom is the only one at home and she wants to start bringing in a bottle, but the timing doesn't suit because the partner's not home too late, then a bouncer chair can be very effective. Okay. Very interesting. So on to kind of with regards to the six month plus, you're pretty much doing the same thing. When it comes to over six months, um, some parents will still like under six months, we'll always nearly transition to a bottle because babies are still taking higher volumes of milk in uh, throughout a day period. So the bottle is the easiest way for another caregiver to be able to give it. Over six months, generally speaking, most parents will still try to use the bottle, but it just comes down to the point of where if the fight is so high and it is causing so much stress within a, a family environment, then you have to question, is it the only source that a baby is going to be able to take it? So what we'd look at is obviously trial the bottle, do all the techniques that we kind of go through. And then if they're not at this stage anyway, six months, we should be really focusing on a sippy cup, a free flowing sippy cup and working with that to get the child getting used to being able to 
drink from a sippy cup. If it comes to it, then then you have the choice, then you might end up uh, transitioning onto a sippy cup or you might end up transitioning onto another one would be the honey bear sippy cup. This is like, it looks like pretty much the shape of a honey bear, but you can squeeze it. So when you squeeze it, the milk comes up the straw and that kind of teaches the baby how to suck from a straw. That takes time. It's Rome wasn't built in a day, but it can be very effective on teaching a baby how to use a straw cup and they can go on um, if the, it's used continuously um, to be able to drink from very well. Otherwise, a free flowing sippy cup. Um, um, I wouldn't use a water sippy cup. So if the baby has a sippy cup for the water, don't use the same sippy cup for milk because if they turn off the milk in the sippy cup, they think it's the water cup and they won't like it. So I'd always say maybe pick the same brand, but a different color. So if they come in two different colors, pick that. And basically do the same kind of thing. And it's about uh, weaning back down um, yourself. So just be cautious that if you are weaning that even still kind of from six months to a year, you can have still a really good milk supply. So you just need to taper it down that way and just mind yourself and check and feel your breasts every morning to make sure there's no lumps and bumps. And then for the over the year, it's all about distraction is your best friend and consistency is key. So we know and I know we've spoken about this before, Afif, is that when we drop feeds over the age of year, we do not need to replace with a milk feed. So parents often get confused about how do I get them to, they won't drink milk and I can't get them to. You don't need them. What you need to focus on is their diet. So they should be having breakfast, lunch and dinner, two snacks in between, and then focusing on three portions of calcium within a day. So a portion of calcium can be milk within their cereal, breakfast cereal, a portion of yogurt, a portion of cheese. And if they want to have a cup of milk, then by all means, they can revert on full fat cow's milk. But it's not a necessity to push large volumes of milk at this age. Milk is a poor nutritional source, but it's a great source of calcium. So we can sometimes get a bit, I suppose we get so obsessed before a year trying to get them to take the milk that after a year, you're kind of like, they don't really need that much. Why is it so different? But they're getting most of their calories from their diet at this stage. So if I was going to pick a feed, I would always pick a mid-morning feed to drop first. And this can be substitute with a, substituted with a snack and um, their sippy cup of water. And basically a lot of parents go, but they always go to sleep on the breast. So this is where you put your baby in the buggy and people who are weaning will walk more or they'll exercise more than they've ever done before because this is all about taking the child away from the natural kind of habitat where they'd normally look for it and you separate them. So basically you give them their snack, they have a drink and then you put them in the buggy and they go out for a walk and they might have a doze asleep in the um, buggy and then you get the back have loads of kind of games or activities ready for them and you drop that feed then you I would always breastfeed the next feed so the next feed might come around the lunchtime and drop the mid-afternoon feed and again you might end up going out for a walk they might have a nap that way and then you start with deciding which feeds are the reluctance would be higher or which ones can you drop so sometimes it is the case that if a child is awake at six parents will often give a breastfeed to keep you give you a little bit of time extra in bed but if a child wakes at six, six onwards is a normal wake up time for any infant. We'd prefer if they stayed a bit longer, but that's perfectly fine. So if they wake from six onwards, I'd nearly target a morning one where I'd get up and I'd actually bring them straight down or the partner can and focus on getting the breakfast into them. So then they've got the breakfast one gone. They've got their mid morning gone. They've got the mid afternoon and then drop the lunchtime one because you can substitute that with their dinner and then start working out throughout the day. The nights are the hardest, guys. There's no point in me lying. This is where a partner will often play a bigger role here. We tried to drop the days first. If you're planning on dropping all feeds, then drop your days first because the overall supply takes a bigger hit. It's easier then and there's less reliance because we've kind of started settling them in other ways uh, during the day. I know we had Lindsay on before and she talks about sleep habits. And these are really important things to even start implementing now during the days while you're breastfeeding to sleep or even at night when you're sleeping, feeding to sleep is start building up these habits. So when we take away the breast, we have another source of comfort to provide. So that could be patting a bum, rubbing the face, rubbing their hair, 
tapping them, whatever it is, so that if you keep doing it now and every single time they're going to sleep, that when we start pulling the breast away, that we can give them another little bit of comfort and a habit in exchange for that. But it really does play a part of the partner coming in. And it's about them, especially at night. You might, I'd never drop the one that puts them to sleep initially. I'd focus on the ones that after they next wake up. But that's a partner that needs to get in there nice and quick, that needs to not turn on the light, that kind of soothes them. And it's about how they react as well. So if you have a partner that gets really anxious and upset and worked up by a baby getting a little bit upset, then it leads to the child reacting in addition to that. So, you know, it's about trying to calm them. You know, they mightn't be happy about the situation that you're weaning them, but it's about slowing it down. If a baby gets to the point where they're getting really upset, then a mother steps in, she feeds, but gives a shorter period, a shorter feed where possible and tries to settle back down and you keep doing it. But by dropping day feeds and as many feeds as possible reduces the overall supply. Yeah. So it, what I'm getting at you is that you still maintain the responsive parenting element Absolutely. to it. And you like, don't, yeah. It, it just takes time. Like uh, parents kind of think it'll, you know, it can be easier in some of these situations where parents think this is going to take me ages, actually. For some, in, in some instances, when the supply drops significantly, babies actually kind of don't get the love that they got from the breast before. So they'll actually kind of go, no, I don't want it. And that can be quite upsetting for a parent that's not really, they kind of know they're going to wean, but they're not fully there yet. Um, yes, you always, it's about a parent, even the other parent that's there, it's about responding to them. They can soothe them in many different ways. They can pick them up, they can rock them. We don't get a, a mother to jump in straight away because sometimes we have to give that other parent a bit of confidence that they can do it. And in fairness to them, where they haven't been involved before at all with regards to settling them or settling them back to sleep, it can be quite challenging. Remember that the breast is often not what woke the baby, but it's the quickest way to get a baby back to sleep. So if you are weaning to improve sleep, be prepared. That doesn't, stopping breastfeeding doesn't equate to a full night's sleep. So it just takes time. Sometimes with the over twos, we often see when you take the breast away, they will reverse and kind of start sleeping nights much quicker. That's not the case for a lot of infants. And we do, I will say, I find a lot of children kind of between the ages of a year, maybe 14 months to just before two, probably the harder ones for night awakenings because they tend, they're going through so much development at that point, gross motor skills, fine motor skills, their speech is taking off that they can have an awful lot more night awakenings. And when we take the breast away, it just means you have to find another way to settle them. Also emphasizes the important role of the partner in in weaning off the breast and yeah. that really have to get stuck in um, with kind of taking over some of the roles as well. And it is hard, like in fairness, I mean, if they've never been involved in this area before, it's kind of daunting for them as much as anything else to suddenly say, right, you're in there now. It also does depend. They don't tend to wake like the partner that's always gotten up to feed does. So I know that I would have, when it was, when I was trying to wean, I think it was Tom, I used to have to wake Jim, but like, I mean, by the time I woke him up, he'd nearly have nearly fallen out of the bed, turned down the light. He'd created so much noise that the child was awake at that stage. So it kind of just takes a bit of time to get them on board that they're ready for it. I'd never start during a stressful time. I'd pick a weekend. So if they have a really bad night of it, they can go back to sleep the next morning and take, like you can work together as a team. Poor dads get so much bashing on, on this podcast. <laughs> Not just dads, in fairness, there's other partners. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, well, great. You did all the work here. I feel like a spare tit in this episode. <laughs> uh, um, like most of them, in fairness, exactly. when it comes to the weaning process. Yeah, absolutely. So this, it was it was very lifelike. So um, <laughs> thank you very much, Katie. I think that was very informative. I know I've learned a lot, but it's sort of useless for me now because my kids are 12 and 15. So we're kind of I well keep past telling a thief to go back to the beginning. No, miniature Yorkie is all I say. Yeah, <laughs> miniature Yorkie is um, filling filling that that hole. We'll be back um, in a couple of minutes. 
when choosing your antenatal care journey, you need a team that you can trust. Here at Evie, we offer personalised, multidisciplinary care in a state-of-the-art environment, ranging from consultant care, high-end scanning and prenatal testing, to expert advice on diet, exercise and mental health. Our team of world-class consultants in obstetrics, gynaecology and paediatrics provide the highest standards of care for you and your baby. Contact us today on 01 293 3984 or visit our website at ev.ie for more information. Evie, a game changer in antenatal care. And it's that time of the week again, folks. It's a Fief's nerdy segment. So hit us, Afif. What are we talking about? Today, we are talking about spontaneous baby movements. You know, all these random movements that newborn babies do. And we often sometimes look at them and say, you know, what is the baby doing? They're randomly moving their feet. They're randomly moving their eyes. They're randomly moving their hands. And sometimes they have these jerky movements. Some of them could be reflexes, but a lot of them tend to be without purpose. And I get asked about these movements a lot, especially when I do the two and six week checks in my clinic. And my standard answer would be they are kind of normal part of the baby development. And up until recently, though, you know, we thought that these were sort of spontaneous, random baby movements that they just do without any purpose. Well, there was a recent study from Japan that came out at the end of last year that have shown that these random spontaneous movements may actually aid in the development of the baby's sensory motor system, which I found really, really interesting. What these researchers did is that they captured the random movements of newborns with sort of motion capture technology, and they related them to the development of the more patterned movements that the babies do later on in their development. So they're walking, they're reaching up, they're grasping, they're pincer grasp. And we've spoken about a lot of these developmental uh, milestones, I suppose, in babies throughout the series of, of the podcast. But what they actually found is that these spontaneous movements actually have a purpose and they were able to map these random spontaneous movements to development in specific aspects of the motor development of babies. So they actually found that these movements can be mapped to later specific movements that babies do later on in life. So these move random movements were actually very relevant in aiding the development of the baby. So the next time you are looking at your newborn and how they move, they appear spontaneous and they appear random, but they actually have a very important developmental role in shaping how the baby moves down the line, which I found was very, very interesting. Yeah, that's amazing. Like, I didn't actually know that because yeah. um, parents ask all the time, oh, my baby keeps doing this or they're moving their hand this way. Um, so now it's good to know that. It all has a purpose for down the road. Yeah, absolutely. And the results of the study actually supports the theory that newborns and infants can acquire these kind of sensory motor modules, that is meaning synchronized muscle activity and sensory input through spontaneous whole body movement without an explicit purpose or task. So the random movements that they do earlier on actually shape how they develop down the line. Moving on to the final segment of this episode and parental questions. So, Katie, we have a question from a mother here who has started weaning her baby from the breast and she's currently able to give the baby a bottle provided there is expressed breast milk in it, but the baby is refusing formula in a bottle. So can you can you help us with that? 
So this is quite common starting off. Um, a really good tip is that obviously um, use your breast milk and then start slowly titrating in the formula. So if your baby's only taking 60 mils, then start with maybe putting just 10 mils of formula in there. And slowly, uh, once they're taking that, and they're taking it well after maybe two to three days, then reduce it up to the 20 mils and keep going until you've titrated fully breast milk and formula. If your baby's taking larger quantities, then you might end up putting an ounce in against like so one ounce to four ounce, three ounces of uh, breast milk and slowly titrating it up there. It just honestly depends on how sensitive your baby's palate is and it can take time for them to change. Obviously, the taste of breast milk is an awful lot sweeter than it is uh, than formula is. So it can just take them a bit of time, but slowly but surely you'll get there. And I suppose it's important to emphasize that you make up the formula separately. You do not add yes. powder to the breast milk. Yes, yeah, sorry. So make up your bottle of formula completely as in a full bottle. And then you have your bottle of um, express milk. And you basically, if you've got three ounces of breast milk, you'll just add your one ounce of fully made up or your pre-made, if that's what you're using, of uh, formula. Great. Well, this brings us to the end of this episode. And the end is so close. The end is near, but <laughs> it's only a temporary end. Only temporary, guys, unless you find somebody uh, better to fill in on the other side of the baby tribe. I'm actually setting out to have backups now because <laughs> you're so fickle and you love going to other podcasts. I'm, I'm going to line up some backups over the summer. He says that now, guys, but actually he got some cards made up for the uh, the baby tribe and I'm, I'm all over it. So I don't think he can uh, get rid of me too quick. There's always stickers, Katie, that we, can, <laughs> that we can put over your face. Don't worry. I'm great at editing. So, <laughs> Well, actually, guys, that is so true, because if you could be here for a lot of our uh, podcast sessions, the amount of editing poor Afif does by the end of it, I'm like, how did you do that? And so well. Yeah, she says a lot of M's. I do a lot of M's and a lot of other things. And I get rid of a lot of them. I now know what her M looks like. I'm actually <laughs> going to do a painting of the sound wave of her M's and give it to her as a present. Um, I know. Do you know what? I remember, um, there we go, M. As a kid, we did uh, speech and drama in school and we used to have to describe how to make like a jam sandwich without saying M at all. I yeah. never made it to the end. Well, listen, we're not perfect. I pause a lot between words and I have to actually cut out a lot of dead space <laughs> between what I say. So sometimes. you're the slow and I'm the fast and we work well together. Exactly. We're a perfect match. Perfect. Anyway, folks, we will see you next week. See you next week, guys.